everybody. I'd like to welcome you to Severn. We're in week eight of a series out of the book of Ephesians called The Church, where we are uh, looking at what it means to be a Christian and a part of this thing called the church. So if you were with us last Sunday, uh, you, you probably remember that the, um, the focus of the teaching, it was very uh, communal, very corporate in nature. It was all about us. And uh, we almost spoke exclusively, you know, about the church as a whole. And so the three moves of that teaching were the paradox that the church is, the problem that the church has, the prescription that the church needs. Um, the, uh, the passage that we're looking at today is a really brilliant complement to that. Because in this passage, Paul's focus, although he's obviously still writing to the Ephesian church as a whole, his focus is much more personal and much more individual. And what he lays out for us is how to change as a follower of Jesus. So I want to read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24, which says, Therefore, I say this and testify in the Lord, you should no longer walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their thoughts. They're darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God, because of the ignorance that's in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. But that is not how you learned about the Messiah, assuming you heard about him and were taught by him because the truth is in Jesus. You took off your former way of life, the old self that's corrupted by deceitful desires. You are being renewed in the spirit of your minds. You put on the new self, the one creating created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. This is God's word. So the concept of change, uh, it's nice when you get to talk about that on Sunday morning because change is universally attractive to people. That's why every year countless people come up with these things called New Year's resolutions. One thing every resolution has in common is that we all want at least something about us to change. What Christianity says is everything about you can change. That's what this passage is about. Uh, what, what Paul is laying out for us here, which is what Christianity, what God himself is laying out for us here, is that Christianity at its core is about a human being undergoing the deepest, most radical change imaginable. It's about taking off an old self and putting on a brand new self. And what we're looking at in these verses is basically how you do that and what that process requires. Um, Quick side note that if you have already given your life to Jesus, I would just ask you, please don't believe that this has nothing for you. Because obviously this was written originally to people who had already become followers of Jesus. But what you're looking at in these verses, these concepts are not only how you become a follower of Jesus, they're also how you take every single step in becoming more like Jesus, how you grow from that moment until the day God calls you home. And so without further ado, let me just say this. If you're here today and, and you love everything about yourself and you want desperately to remain exactly as you are as long as you live, I suggest you leave immediately or if you're tuning in online, pause me very quickly. Assuming you haven't paused me yet, let's continue. This teaching is for people who, like me, want to change. We're going to talk about uh, how Christianity can accomplish that and what that requires. 
So how, how is it? What's the Christian answer to this idea? Um, how do you change? What does that actually require? I got three ideas from these passages, um, and they'll serve as our three main ideas today. So number one, deep, lasting, genuine change requires, first and foremost, seeing your life for what it is. Let me read chapter 4, verses 17 to 19. It says, Therefore, I say this and testify in the Lord, you should no longer walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their thoughts. They're darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. So um, let's just be really candid here. At, at least when I first read this, my first impression was this does not look good. Because if you take these verses out of context, what this sounds like, it sounds like Paul is writing to the Ephesians and he's trashing their filthy, unwashed, pagan, Gentile neighbors. That's what these verses sound like. Which, if you think about it, would be very out of character for Paul, considering he dedicated his entire life to preaching the gospel specifically to Gentiles and explaining how they can be welcomed into the family of God. That actually was something that caused Paul to fall um, very severely out of favor with his Jewish brethren and in a lot of ways led to him being incarcerated, which he was when he wrote the letter to, to the Ephesians. So the question that that brings to mind for me, first and foremost, is why is Paul bad-mouthing Gentiles to the Ephesians here? The answer is, of course, he's not. If you go back to chapter 3, verse 1, Paul, writing to the Ephesians, says, I'm in prison on behalf of you Gentiles. And yet what he's saying here is don't walk like Gentiles. So, so here's what's happening here. In these verses, Paul is not talking to the Ephesians about how their neighbors live. He's talking to them about how they themselves used to live. He's talking about the lives that they used to live that God has called them out of as followers of Jesus. And the only reason that Paul is able to do that is because the Ephesians had come to be able to see their old lives for what they were, which is the first and most foundational step toward lasting change in an individual's life. It's about seeing your life for what it is. Now, we could kind of pivot from this idea and just move forward, but there's a whole lot more here for us. And what I want to do is just break verses 17 uh, through 19 into three pieces and look at what the Ephesians had come to realize about their old lives, which is what you and I have to come to realize about our old lives. Uh, so first off, let's look at just verses 17 and 18, where Paul says, Therefore, I say this and testify in the Lord, you should no longer walk as the Gentiles walk, and the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. So let me just focus on this phrase here, excluded from the life of God. The, um, the Greek word Paul uses here that, that is translated excluded in my Bible, other versions translated alienated, what it literally means is to be cut out from fellowship with so what Paul is saying here is, is one of the first things the Ephesians realized that caused them to kind of wake up and desire to change at all was they realized that they were cut off from a relationship that they were made to be a part of. There was this certain restlessness. C.S. Lewis puts this really in a helpful way. He says, apparently then, our lifelong nostalgia, our longing, listen to this, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off 
to be on the inside of some door, which we've always seen from the outside. He says that, that feeling, that is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. What Lewis is saying in that quote is that every human heart, regardless of what you believe about truth and lie and, and reality and, and the existence of God and all that, Lewis is saying that underneath Whatever we put on the surface, every human heart secretly senses what the Ephesians had come to realize in their own lives, which is that we're cut off from something that we're made for. And there is no account in any belief system that explains that nagging feeling better than really the creation account of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, when sin entered the world, what we're told happened in that moment is there was this, this cutting off. There was this exclusion, this alienation at every level of human existence that explains why you and I feel the way we feel about life as it is. Genesis 3 says, first off, we were in that moment, we were, we were cut off from a right relationship with nature, which is why we experience decay and death, and it's why we know that those things are wrong. When we see a loved one die, we don't just shrug at that and say, you know, it's the circle of life and and somebody yells out hakuna matata. We know that there's something wrong, that we weren't designed to die and, and experience the weight of death the way that we do. That's because we've been cut off from nature itself. Genesis 3 also says that in that moment we were cut off from a right relationship with each other. That's why there are things like violence and war and injustice and racism and sexism and, you know, nation oppressing nation. And, and we know intrinsically there's something not right about that. That's not the way life should be. It's because we've been cut off from each other. Genesis 3 also says that we've experienced a, a, a deeply personal, internal, psychological cutting off from ourselves. That's why that so many people, at, at least at some point in their life, they experience this kind of vertigo internally where they would say, I don't know who I am, where we need to find ourselves. You ever think about how crazy that is that we can lose ourselves? The Bible says that's because that's the effect of sin, which explains this kind of low-grade existential crisis that a lot of us might even be feeling right now. But ultimately, where all of that cutting off comes from is that first and foremost, we have been cut off from what Paul says here, the life of God. That's what the Ephesians came to realize. And in verse 17, it says that, that, that he, talking about the Ephesians, he says, you were walking in the futility of your thoughts. Now that word futility means probably what you would think it means, meaninglessness. I, I was reading a commentary this week that said that futility is a vacuum of accomplishment. So here's what this means. Paul is saying that evidently there was some point in these Ephesian believers' lives, some point where they had gotten to this place where, where they, they kind of looked at their life, and yeah, their lives were filled with a lot of activity, a lot of routine, and some of them had probably even achieved a decent level of success according to how their culture defines success, but they, they got to this place where they couldn't, they couldn't shake this nagging feeling that what they were doing didn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. There was this crisis of meaning that came from them being cut off with God. So that's the first thing. What that led to is what Paul says in verse 19, where he says, they became callous. So the next thing the Ephesians realized is that being cut off from God, who is the ultimate source of meaning, uh, the effect that that had on them is it created this callousness or this numbness, which literally means an inability to feel. Uh, to, to kind of bring this idea home, I wanted to use another quote. If you've been at the church for a while, you've heard this one before. This is from Brad Pitt. Sorry for recycling content, but this quote fits obnoxiously well with what we're talking about here. You'll see what I mean in a minute. So in a 1999 Rolling Stone magazine interview, which was basically when, when Brad Pitt got as famous as he was ever going to be, 
I mean, he's, he's one life at this point. Here's what he said. Man, I know all these things are supposed to seem important to us, the car, the condo, our version of success, but if that's the case, why is the general feeling out there reflecting more impotence and isolation and desperation and loneliness? If you ask me, I say toss all this. We got to find something else. And then listen to what he says here. Because all I know is that at this point in time, we are heading for a dead end, a numbing of the soul, his words, a complete atrophy of the spiritual being. That is exactly what the Ephesians had come to realize about their old lives, that being cut off from this relationship with God, uh, they had become basically this, this callous, numb shell of what a human being is, is really originally designed to be. And I, and I can't help but see the irony here that so often Christianity is thought of as this belief system that really forces you to become numb. You know, the, the idea in Christianity is you're supposed to just dumb down your desires, say no to all the things that you really want to. It's super restrictive, and it basically keeps you from being happy. But maybe if you're miserable enough on this side of eternity, God will save you in the next one. That's how so many people view Christianity, where what the Bible is saying here is that actually the exact opposite is the truth. The Bible says that one day every one of us will eventually come to realize that there is nothing more stifling, more deadening, or more numbing to the human being than to attempt to live apart from a relationship with God. So what this whole thing culminates to, if you just read the the rest of verse 19, you'll see uh, how we respond to this. And I've I've actually heard theologians call these these verses, it's basically a psychology of atheism. It's a look into the life of what will happen apart from God. This is what happens. Verse 19 says, They became callous and gave themselves over, to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. So so Paul says, in response to this, the Ephesians gave themselves over. Now the word he uses there, really fascinating, because it means to hand someone over under the power of something else. So I looked up where else that, that... that word appears in the New Testament, and I came across Matthew 4.12. Matthew 4.12 tells us that John the Baptist had been arrested, and that word arrested is the same Greek word Paul uses here when he says the Ephesians gave themselves over, which makes sense because John the Baptist, in being arrested, had been handed over under the power of, in that case, King Herod. But what's fascinating is here Paul is saying that the Ephesians had done this to themselves, the Ephesians, in, in trying to live apart from God, they had basically arrested themselves or handed themselves into the custody of what he says is all of these out-of-control desires. And all it ever left them with was this nagging dissatisfaction and a hunger for more. So, so, so you kind of, you trace this thread here, and here's the progression that the Ephesians were clearly able to see in hindsight looking back on the lives that they lived before they came to the saving knowledge of Jesus. First off, they were cut off from God. That's the ultimate source of meaning in their life. What that led to, secondly, is this profound numbing of their soul. They just, they lost the ability to feel. They were becoming less and less alive. And in response to that, they were frantically giving themselves over to all these different things in their lives, hoping that someone or something could be for them what only God could be for them. And all it ever left them with is this emptiness that had them going back, thinking maybe if I get more of what's never satisfied me, next time I'll be satisfied. So what, what, what's the point of all this? Why is Paul writing to people who have already left that life behind to tell them about what that life was like? Here's the point. 
when you and I get to a point in our lives where we begin to sense and see this, when you and I get to a point in our lives when we can begin to see that the real reason we feel so numb or so callous, the real reason that we feel so empty or that our lives are devoid of meaning, the real reason that we are so unsatisfied and exhausted, when we can see that the real reason for that is because we've asked everything and everyone else to be what only God can be for us. Scripture says that, and only when you get to that place is real, lasting, genuine change now a possibility in your and my life. So what I thought would be appropriate here is just kind of let you in on what that looked like for me. Some of you have probably at least heard parts of this before. I don't think I was a Christian until I was 19 years old. And it was actually through a conversation that I had with a friend of mine who was a professing atheist that God really got a hold of my life. And so I love being able to say that an atheist preached me the sermon that changed my life is what it boils down to. I've kind of told you the details about that conversation before, so I won't get into them here. The point is, That conversation left me with a, it was like a door shut behind me and I knew I couldn't go back. I couldn't unhear the things that I had heard and I knew I had to do something. I had to do something. So just a few days after that conversation, I found myself at a uh, worship service on a Friday night and I do not remember what the message was about. I don't remember um, what song was playing. I remember that I was sitting at a high top table in a dark room with very loud music playing, which looking back, I'm very thankful for because during worship, I started to cry. And not like the cool kind of crying, whatever that is. I mean like Old Testament ugly crying. And, d- and during worship, unprompted, it wasn't like somebody did an altar call or guilted me or played into my emotion, whatever it was, it was just completely unprompted. I felt this need to start talking to God out loud. And all I said, I just apologized to him. And what I said was, God, I'm sorry. Through tears, I could barely get the words out. I said, God, I'm sorry for ever thinking that anything other than a relationship with you could satisfy me. And it's, it's neat because now what I can see all those years ago is that what was happening in my life, the truth is it was a several year long process that culminated that night. But what was happening in my life is I, I was just realizing in a personal way everything that Paul is talking about here. That's where real change began in my life. It's where real change began in the Ephesian believers' lives. And it's really, it's the place that all change begins. So before I move on from this, let me just, just pull out two implications One you probably won't like to hear, but the other one I think is really encouraging. Let's start with the bad news. Uh, When you think through this first idea, that that lasting change requires first and foremost seeing your life for what it is, you realize that no one can get another person to this place. As much as we would love to, and as much as somebody else would love to for us, you can't get somebody here, you can't get them to see this just like nobody else could get you to see this. I don't know if you've ever heard this joke, how does a psychologist change a light bulb? The, the answer is it takes years and the light bulb has to really want to change. <laughs> it's true. That's how all change begins. You can't change something until you want to change it. You can't want to change it until you see it for what it is. And nobody can get somebody else to this place. But with that, this next thing should be encouraging and then we'll move on. I'm willing to bet that there's a number of people listening to me right now where the way that I describe the Ephesian believers' lives in verses 17 to 19 sounds pretty familiar to you. I'm willing to bet that there's people here that 
that, that feel that, that meaninglessness, that futility. You feel like you're cut off from God. You want more of a personal, you'd love this idea of a life-giving relationship with him. And you, you, you feel this kind of callousness in you, this numbness in you, and you recognize how prone you are to looking outside of God for what can only be found inside of God. But you've arrived at this place where you realize, I can't just decide to change that. I can't just flip that switch. If that's where you're coming from and you're frustrated with the change, the, the lack of change that you see in your life, I would say that you should actually be very encouraged because you did not decide to see your life that way. You couldn't have. If you are waking up to this, this deep sense of futility, to use Paul's word, this, this deep sense of callousness and this deep sense that, you know, I'm not really free. I'm just giving my life to all these masters that never give me what they promise. That, according to the Bible, is the beginning and the prerequisite to, to potentially life-altering, deep transformational change. However, and I think the Brad Pitt quote kind of proves this, that does not get you home. It's not enough to just really be dissatisfied with the life that you're living. There's things that you need in addition to that. What are they? This brings us to our second idea. That according to the Bible, the second element that's absolutely vital to deep, fundamental change is number two, a personal encounter with God. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 and 21 says, That's not how you learned about the Messiah, assuming you heard about him and were taught by him, because the truth is in Jesus. So consider this. Paul is writing to the Ephesians. That's a group of Christians living in Asia Minor. Not only was this letter written about 30 to 40 years after the death of Jesus, but on top of that, Jesus never came anywhere near Asia Minor during his time here. And yet, I just read it to you, Paul is saying that the Ephesians were personally taught by Jesus. That means, and I'm convinced that every, every legitimate Christian that, that's listening to this message or that ever does, knows exactly what I'm talking about. You know something about what I'm talking about. What Paul is saying is that there was a point in, in the Ephesian people's lives where God stopped just being a theory. He stopped just being this idea. He stopped being this abstract concept. And at some point in their life, it came home and they had a personal encounter with God in the person and work of Jesus, which is the second absolutely essential element of deep, lasting change. Now, let me ask a question. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but let's ask why. Obviously, a hallmark of Christianity is this idea that, first off, you can have a personal encounter with God because Christianity teaches our God entered into human history. But it, it, Christianity further teaches you need a personal encounter with God. It's not just enough to observe religious practices. Let's ask the question, why is that? And I want to give you an answer that is so central to Christianity and why it can uniquely transform somebody. The reason that you and I need to have a personal encounter with God, and I'll make this personal for you, is because when you encounter God in a personal way, you realize what your sin really does. Your sin does not just break God's rules. It breaks his heart. It actually hurts him. And this idea that our sin can affect, can wound God, that idea is a unique resource only Christianity offers us which is why I'm absolutely convinced Christianity can change a human being's heart the way that no other belief system can. All right, I, I started this idea a couple of weeks ago. Um, 
But let, let's get into this. I want to do a little bit of comparing and contrasting of Christianity with every other major belief system. I said this, I think it was week two or three of this series. But every other belief system, one of the things that they have in common is that they're all marked by the same basic formula. The formula is that morality leads to salvation. Now, obviously, every belief system differs on how they define morality and how they define salvation, but the formula is there in every one of them. Let's just walk through a few of these. So with Buddhism, Buddhism teaches if you walk according to the Eightfold Path, then you will achieve enlightenment and and you will eventually become one with the all-soul of the universe. Morality leads to salvation. Hinduism teaches that if you live a good life and you navigate suffering without complaining, you'll escape the process of reincarnation, that endless cycle, and you'll enter into nirvana. That's morality leads to salvation. Islam teaches if you conduct your life according to the five pillars, you live a life according to the will of Allah, regardless of how you think and feel about that will, then at the end of your life, he'll take you to paradise. Morality leads to salvation. And even Judaism, that's the belief system that the author of this letter was pulled out of by Jesus himself, Judaism teaches basically you you live according to the Ten Commandments, you keep the law of God, and God will answer your prayers, he'll bless you, you get to go to heaven when you die. Once again, morality leads to salvation. Let's ask a question here. Within those belief systems, who does your sin actually hurt? And I'll just tell you what the answer is. The answer is you. Your sin hurts you. The entire reason with every one of those belief systems and countless more that we don't have time to go over, the common denominator, the primary motivation for living a good life, for living a moral life, for doing the good things and not doing the bad things is because if you don't, it will cost you. It will cost you enlightenment. It will cost you blessing. It will cost you salvation. It will cost you paradise. It will cost you heaven. And and believe it or not, secularism teaches exactly, it operates exactly the same way. Secularism is the belief that there is no God, there is no supernatural reality, there is no ultimate right and wrong. Everybody has to figure out what's right and wrong for themselves. If that sounds like a horrifying idea to you, I hate to break it to you, you live in a secular society that's getting more secular all the time. Even within secularism, it really operates the same way as every one of those belief systems because secularism teaches you that you should live a good life because, you know, you could invite a karmic response from the universe if you don't. You know, if, if you become a bad person rather than a good person, whatever that even means, then maybe you'll feel bad about yourself. It'll hurt your self-image. Or maybe it'll hurt your public image. It'll cost you in your relationships. It'll cost you in your career. It'll cost you in some way. My point is, all of these religions appeal to the same motivation. I don't know if you've ever thought about this way. This is the way that they work. They appeal to your self-centeredness to help you deal with your self-centeredness. And they don't work. They can't work. All that can do is, it it might be able to temporarily restrain the human heart by stacking a whole bunch of moral behavior on top of the human heart, but the one thing that they'll never be able to do is change the human heart. Now, Christianity comes along, and Christianity teaches something that no other belief system teaches. Christianity teaches that while, yes, your sin does hurt you, of course it does, and yes, your sin hurts other people, of course it does, Christianity go so far as to say that your sin hurts the God who created you and loved you enough to enter into human history to take your sin on himself. And at Calvary, what you and I are being confronted with is the reality that your sin caused God to bleed. It caused God to be crushed to the point that his sweat became like drops of blood. It caused God to call out and be forsaken. It caused him to weep. It caused him to die. 
That realization will change a human heart like nothing else can. And to prove it, let me tell you a story. I don't want to alarm anybody, said Brian with a smirk on his face. But a couple of weeks ago, Katie and I got into an argument. I'm as surprised as you. Uh, about a month ago, Katie and I actually hit our nine-year anniversary, late July. We hit nine years, and this is the first argument we've ever had. So not too bad, right? I figure if we can keep it to one argument a decade, we'll be okay. I, I have to say this. That's a joke. Two people came up to me after the 9 a.m. like they could not wrap their head around the fact that the pastor only had one. That's a joke. I feel, I feel under compulsion that I need to say that to you. <laughs> scared me. It would scare you. I, if you're not fighting more than once a decade, I'm just going to say you've done something wrong. Um, but anyway, we were, we were kind of gridlocked, and, uh, and, and we had been that way for about a week. And when I say we were gridlocked, what I mean is Katie was right, and I was wrong, and I was having a lot of trouble admitting it. And things had gotten a little bit weird, and, and we, we had one of those moments where we realized, all right, we just got to face each other. We got to, you know, it's, it needs to get a little bit uncomfortable. We got to talk. And so Katie was explaining to me what she thought the issue was and what she thought the solution was, and I was, I was doing what the human heart so naturally does, what, what, what nobody needs to teach us to do. I was doing a lot of self-justifying. I was being really defensive, and I was emotionally and psychologically withdrawing. I just want to point this out. Uh, that is a very potentially dangerous place for a relationship to be, uh, where one partner is saying, hey, this is what I think the issue is, and the other partner is saying, I don't really see it that way. That's where a lot of relationships go to die. Because what can happen if you stay there long enough is you, you just give up and you stop facing each other and you stop leaning in and you stop having the hard conversations and you slowly drift away. But Katie said something to me that immediately ended the gridlock. And I'm going to tell you exactly what she said. She said, I feel like you're hurting us. Side note here, one of these, one of these days, I'm going to do a series on marriage. And one of those weeks, we're going to dedicate to conflict resolution and what it means to fight fair, you know. I'll just put a plug in for it now. That is what it means to fight fair. That's how a godly woman confronts her husband. There's no ad hominem attacks there's no bringing up the past in order to wound the person that you're married to. There's no elevating your voice. There's no name calling. It's nothing. She just simply said, I feel like you're hurting us. And that stopped me dead in my tracks. Because in that moment, I realized, oh, this isn't just costing me. This isn't just hurting me. This is hurting somebody that I love who loves me. And so the only thing that I could do is I, I took a deep breath and I simply said, I'm sorry. And right then things began to heal. And I can say, the only reason I'm even bringing this up, you know, I'm able to talk about this right now is because I can say before God, and I believe Katie would tell you the same thing, we are closer on the other side of that argument than we were before it. So here's the question, why am I bringing this up? Here's why. The human heart cannot change. I'll make this personal. You cannot change in a deep and lasting way until you hear Jesus say the same thing to you. 
until you do, until you realize what your sin does, not just to you, but to God, until you and I realize that, then we will repent the way all merely religious people repent. We'll repent because we don't like what our sin does to us. We don't like how our sin makes us feel. We don't like the consequences of our sin. And so what inevitably happens is when those consequences go away, so does the repentance. And then we spend weeks or months or years or decades in the same behavior over and over again. Scripture says, like a dog returning to its vomit. How's that for an image? The only way to break out of that cycle is to come to terms personally with what your sin does, not just to me, but to the God who loves me. Not just to you, but to the God who loves you. And nobody knew this better than Paul because if you know anything about his testimony, that is exactly how he changed. You know his testimony. Acts chapter 9, Paul was going about his life on the road to Damascus and he was confronted quite violently by the risen Son of God. And when Jesus spoke to him, Jesus did not say, Saul, you've been breaking God's law, even though he was. He didn't say, Saul, you've been hurting innocent people, even though he was. Jesus said, Saul, you've persecuted me. That was Jesus' way of saying, Saul, all this time, all of your life, with all of your good deeds, all of your effort, all of your morality, your attempts to be your own God, your own master, your own Lord, your, your own Savior, Jesus said, Saul, you have wounded me with the life that you've lived. When that sinks in, change sinks in. But even that, as essential as it is, is not all that we need according to this passage. The third and the final element that lasting change requires will be our last idea this morning. I just, I've called it number three, a constant renewal. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24, we read, You took off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires. You are being renewed in the spirit of your minds. You put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness and righteousness and purity of the truth. Now, in these verses, Paul very succinctly is describing the radical change that takes place in the life of somebody who gives their life to Jesus. There's a taking off of your old self. There's a putting on of a brand new self. And, and, and what's interesting is both of those statements are in what's known as the aorist tense. That's a tense that you'll find in Greek grammar that refers to a past action that is complete. It was done once and for all. He's saying, you took off your old self, you put on your old self. But in between those two things is this process that some versions translate as a command where Paul talks about being renewed in the spirit of your minds. That's what's in between the taking off of the old, the putting on of the new. And so the question is, if, if there can be no taking off of the old and putting on of the new without this renewing of the spirit of the mind, well, then what does that phrase actually mean? And I'm going to keep it real with you. I don't exactly know. I read over 100 pages of material on these verses alone this week, and what I found out is no one exactly knows. People way smarter than me have had a lot of trouble figuring out exactly what it is that Paul's saying here. He's not talking about the Holy Spirit because it's the spirit of our minds. But what every expert agrees is what Paul is not saying here. Everyone agrees that Paul is not just saying, think good thoughts. That's not what he's talking about. The spirit of your mind is not a particular thought that you think. It's something that is underneath and behind all of your thinking. 
that both produces and guides every thought that you think. And so here's the way that this makes sense to me, and maybe this will make sense to somebody else. If you have a human being who's legitimately passionate about something, whether it's a career goal that they have, a relationship they want to get in, a social cause that they're dedicated to, you don't have to tell them to think about that because they're always thinking about it. Their, their, their whole life is oriented around this thing that they want more than anything else. And so their thoughts are always dwelling on, how can I get that? What do I need to do today to get there tomorrow? And, 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 and how happy and how healed and how whole and how great my life is going to be when I finally get that. And so when Paul says here that you and I need to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, what he's saying is the truth about who God is and what he's done for us, and all that that means, all the implications of the gospel, that can't just be something that we think about like we think about a billion other things a day. That needs to become so foundational to our lives that it, it's, it's, it's the central aspect of who we are that determines every thought that we have. The gospel and what it means needs to become the lens through which we see every moment of our lives. That's what it means to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And we're almost done today. I, I want to end today with a story and then a quote. Uh, and, and maybe this will kind of shed light on this last concept. Because what we're looking at now, this constant renewal, this is the ongoing work that begins the day you give your life to Jesus that doesn't stop until God takes you into glory. Now, when I was thinking through this concept and, and how I could illustrate it for other people, here's what I have. Before I resigned from the fire department, I wrote five letters Uh, to the five men that worked out of my firehouse with me. And before I drove home for the last time, I went to each one of them and I handed it to them and I asked them not to read it until I was gone. One of the men that I gave a letter to was known known as Chief McNally. And in the letter that I wrote to him, I told him how, how frustrated I was that other people that were so far below his caliber got to share in his job title because of how much I admired him. Um, And maybe you'll understand why I admired him so much when I describe him. So Chief McNally was the kind of guy that uh, would address you by your first name the first time you walked into the firehouse as a rookie because he would look at our staffing system and he would, um, before you even walked in, he would find what your name was, he would memorize it so that he could shake your, your hand, look you in the eye and address you by your first name, which means a lot to you. Because for the first six months out of the academy, you don't have a name. You know, as far as everybody's concerned, you're a rookie or you're a probie. But to Chief McNally, I had a name. That meant a lot to me. And every morning, uh, the way that I had to start my shift was by cleaning the chief's vehicle that he would drive around Battalion 1, which is basically the north part of Anne Arundel County. I would, I would scrub the tires and, and, you know, make sure that the thing was absolutely, you know, spotless. And what I noticed is Chief McNally was the only chief that thanked me for doing that. To every other chief, you're just doing your job. But Chief McNally saw what you were doing, and he thanked you for what you were doing. It meant a lot to me. Uh, And despite the fact that he had over 30 years in the fire service when I got hired, he would roll up his sleeves and help me do dishes at the end of dinner. That's an amazing thing to me because I saw, you know, time after time, that people would get out of the academy, they they would get two, three years under their belt, and develop this really ugly sense of entitlement where all of a sudden they thought housework was beneath them, But here Chief McNally had more time in the fire department than I had on planet Earth, and he helped me clean up after dinner. So one night I was in the engine bay, and I was going over um, our fire apparatus, which was called uh, Quint 4, and I was was actually having a really bad shift. I felt felt pretty down on myself. I felt like I wasn't living up because... um, 
You know, we, we had our, our, our piece of fire apparatus was, was Quint 4. It was this 48-foot-long, 35-ton diesel-powered monster. It got less than two miles to the gallon. It is single-handedly responsible for the destruction of the ozone layer, and it's got like a 1,000 tools on it. And a part of your job as a rookie is you need to familiarize yourself with where all those tools are, and it's not, you know, it, it, it'd be pretty overwhelming. And earlier that shift, one of my coworkers was quizzing me, and I didn't know where something was, and I, I, I was just really upset with myself. So I was out there that night in the engine bay, and I was going over all that stuff, and Chief McNally walked up to me, and I told him, you know, what was going on and all that. And, uh, and he reached into his, his turnout gear, and he handed me a section of webbing from his gear. Webbing is a special type of rope that we use on rescue calls. He handed me a section of webbing with his name and his badge number on it, and he said, here you go, Ryan. Now you'll never forget me. I still have that section of webbing. I held it in my hand this morning. And I'll tell you this. Prior to that moment, Chief McNally already had my respect. After that moment, like any great leader, he had my heart. After that moment, I would have run into a burning building without my gear on for Chief McNally. And it wasn't because I had to. It wasn't because it was my duty. It was because he gave something to me. And, and the thought that somebody that, that's that well-respected, somebody that I admire that much you know, thought anything of me, it just absolutely melted me. And I think you know where I'm going with this. Right? The question is, if a fire chief can have that kind of impact on a firefighter by giving him a section of rope, let's just ask the question, what should it do to us that the creator of the universe has given you his son? You know what it should do to us. It should melt us. It should, it should transform every molecule of our being. I mean, the distance between who you and I are because of Jesus and who we would have been if we'd never heard the name should be just infinitely wide. We should be a group of people that, that the world just can't figure out. That's what Christians were first known for. We, we should be known for this kind of love like Jesus' love that prayed for the forgiveness of his murderers as he hung on the cross for their sin. We should be known as a people of joy even when nothing about this life goes the way that we want it. To, that, 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 that even, even when we lose our loved ones, even when we lose our health, even when the end is in sight, even when dreams aren't realized, there's a joy that keeps us buoyant. It doesn't even make sense. There's a peace that surpasses all understanding. There's a patience that we're able to, to just stay in the mystery and practice this radical contentment. Like no other group of people on the planet. That's what Christians are called to be known for. You read the Bible, that's what you would say, that's what a Christian is. And the reason that we don't look like that, the reason that I don't look like that, so often is because we just don't take the time to do what Paul's talking about here. There's no other explanation for it. It's because we might go to, we might go to, to a building once a week. We might go to a small group. We might even give God 15 minutes in the morning provided we got a good night's sleep the night before, but, but, but so many of us, myself included, if we got honest, God revolves around our lives. Our lives don't revolve around God. And when Paul talks about being renewed in the spirit of your mind, that's what he's talking about. Paul, Paul is saying that, that in every moment of your life, when your life is good and everything's going the way that, that you'd hoped, it's blessing upon blessing. You're moving from strength to strength. Or when it's hard and nothing is working out the way that you thought that it would. And it just seems like the more you obey, the harder it gets. And you, you know, the chair's been kicked out from underneath you more times than you can count. You know, when God's put people in your life that are hard to love. When you're presented with a huge decision. When, when before you, you have this fork where you can do what's easy, you can do what's right. In the day-to-day -day trenches of this life, 
Paul is saying Christianity is about one more time going back to who God is. One more time you go back to what God's done. One more time you go back to what he's given us and what it means for us, and you sit there and you say, God, I can't take another step until you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, make this real to me. I need you to fuel me to live this life. I can't do it without you, and I'm not moving until you do, until it catches fire in your heart. That is the quote-unquote secret to change. There's no technique. There's no shortcuts. There's no seven habits of spiritually changed people. It's just you and God tomorrow morning. It's not a question of does Christianity work. It's a question of are we willing to work it? Are we, are we willing to, to, Philippians 2, work out our salvation with fear and trembling because God works within us? It's a question of when we wake up tomorrow, do we realize I can't live this life apart from your power and presence in my life? So I'm going to open your word, and I'm going to read what it says, and I'm going to beg you, make it real to me. Fuel me to live this life. Transform me into the image of your son, Jesus. You do that over and over and over and over again until he takes you into glory. That's it. That's the key. I'm going to call the worship team up. I'm going to close with a quote I found a few years ago. I don't know. I always feel this awkward tension when I talk about, you know, on the one hand, when you become a Christian, there's a completeness. You're born again. But then, of course, you know, the New Testament also reminds us that there's this effort. You know, we are changed, but we also work in response to that change. And it, it, it's difficult to communicate in a way that doesn't confuse people. I came across this quote from John Stott years ago. I've never seen anybody outside of the Bible put this better. He said, The remainder of our earthly life is an outworking of what God has already inworked. We are called to become what we are. This is the mighty imperative of Christian ethics. Every other ethical system calls us to the costly effort of becoming what we are not. But in the full salvation already bequeathed to us in Christ, the new nature is already ours, waiting for expression, poised for growth, until its potential is triggered by our obedience to the word of God. I'll leave you with this. If you're here and you haven't given your life to Jesus, I am so positive that the change that you are looking for can be found and can only be found when you bend your knee, you bow your head, you give your life to him. For those of us that have already done that, which I'm, I'm not unaware is most of us, Ephesians 4, 17 through 24 reminds us that the Christian life is not an easy life. It is a life by necessity that must be filled with effort, just like every other life we could have chosen for ourselves. But here's the difference. Here's the difference. In the context of Christianity, in Christ, you and I will never be called to become something that we're not. We are called simply to become what God has already declared us to be. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you that change, first off, that change is possible by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. That in Jesus, we can take off an old self. We can put on a brand new self. That's not talking about just attitudes or mindsets or behaviors. That's us becoming something qualitatively new. That is, pos that is made possible because of the sacrifice of your son. God, in light of what we looked at today, I just ask that you would make us a community of people that are always willing to see our lives for what they are, that we would be hungry for a personal encounter with you in Jesus, and that we would be a people of constant renewal. 
that every day of our lives we would wake up with a renewed sense of how much we depend on you to continually form the image of Jesus in us, to help us live this life for your glory and our joy. In the name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.